Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the controversy in North Dakota. And Richard, some of our listeners may be familiar with a fight that's going on in North Dakota between the the Standing Rock Sioux tribe of Indians and the people who are trying to build the Dakota Access oil pipeline. The, the tribe is saying that this project threatens their sacred sites, might threaten their water supply. And you can sort of understand why this is catnip for the media. Let me just, as a representative example, read you the lead in a story that ABC News ran on their website just a few days ago. Uh, quote here, the saga over a $3.7 billion crude oil pipeline that has pitted Native American groups against big oil. It's back in court today, so that gives you a sense of the framing right there. Now, uh, before we start this, let's make clear for a moment that you were actually involved in this case, Richard. Yeah. What happens is there are not only the two parties that are directly involved, the many third-party interests that are involved, and one of them is an operation known as Maine called the Midwest Alliance for Infrastructure Now Big Capitals, which is a coalition of business, labor, and agricultural interests who all support the pipeline, either for jobs on the one hand or for the collateral benefits that it had generated. And what they've done is they've hired me as to evaluate these things and to become a public spokesman for them. And in all of these cases, I always follow the same rule. If I don't agree with somebody, I don't take the job. And if I I do agree with somebody, I'm willing to write it. Um, and basically the, the deal is they hire me and I write it, then they publish it. So it doesn't go back and get sort of a line-by-line -line approval or examination from uh, the organization. I sometimes check with them about matters of factual accuracy. Indeed, one of the things that you discover whenever you work for particular clients, they are so afraid of overstating a particular point that they always encourage you to tamp down because as that headline starts to suggest, if an Indian tribe or the Sioux tribe decides that they're going to engage in a little bit of hyperbole. Everybody says it's par for the course. You do it on the other side, and the sanctions are really very, very powerful. So this is a very much a Caesar's wife is above suspicion type situation. You have to be extremely careful when you start to recognize an organization like Maine or, in fact, of course, the Energy Associates, which are building the Dakota Access Pipeline. Okay, so with that in mind, I gave you this rhetorical flourish from the ABC report. Let's take out the red. And, and start with the facts. What exactly is at issue here? Well, um, the precise thing at issue on the narrowest possible way is that to run a pipeline, which is about 1,200 miles, you're going to have to go over some places which are not owned by the pipeline companies. And it turns out as you go through the southern part of North Dakota, there is a 1,000-foot strip land which is owned by the United States federal government on which there already runs a pipeline. And the question is whether or not the uh, government has to issue you the permit in order to do this. And you have to understand it's a complicated structure because if you have 12,000, 1,200 miles of pipeline and it gets broken at any single point and you're trying to shift stuff from the Dakota fields on the one hand back to a processing plant in western Illinois on the other, the pipeline is useless. And so therefore what you have to do is to get everybody to line up in order for this thing to go. And so this pressure point has an, exerts an enormous influence on the overall process. Uh, the company essentially has the following calculations. This is Dakota Access. Uh, they are trying to ship uh, 
half a million barrels of oil through a pipeline on a daily basis. They know, as everybody else knows, it's safer to shift this stuff through a pipeline uh, than it is to shift it by rail or by truck, where in fact you can cause serious damage if there's a derailment or a crash that can spill this stuff. So it's not as though when you build the pipeline, you just build the tube. What you do is you have an elaborate set of controls that allows you to control any kind of adverse effect relatively efficiently by shutting down the key set segments of the pipeline from a centralized location or to do it lo- locally. It's, it's the case with all safety systems. You build in a lot of redundancy into these pipelines. And this is designed to make sure that the pollution risk, the water contamination risk is controlled. The second way in which you try to control this risk is the way in which you run this pipeline. So somebody had proposed a northern route, which would have been a little bit longer and would have gone through some more sensitive territories. And what happened is Dakota Access, working with the government and with other private parties essentially picked this particular route in order to minimize those kinds of difficulties. It is also the case that if it turns out that what you have to do is to make some small adjustment in order to keep the oil and gas flowing through this thing, you're more than willing to do it. So their attitude from the beginning has always been show us a problem and we'll fix it. And they have a long set of fixes that they were prepared to put into place as people started to raise objections. So this thing goes through this particular process. And it's not just that it had to go through the process with the um, pipeline and the uh, United States services and so forth, the Army Corps of Engineers. They also had to go through the Public Services Commission in North Dakota, South Dakota, Illinois, and Iowa the states through which the pipeline went. And the tribes essentially have taken a very bellicose position and have refused to participate into these declarations because they don't think they've given them enough say over the way in which the pipeline works. And so a lot of what this dispute is about is exactly the way in which the statutes give them rights. And these are rights, I could explain later if you'd like, which are not veto rights. You can never allow anybody to veto a pipeline. But their coalition, their their consultation rights, which are allow you to have your views spoken so that when the Army or the other public utilities commissions decide what they're going to do, they can take into account your views and adjust the pipeline accordingly. Okay, so Richard, the Standing Rock Sioux want an injunction here. Walk us through the legal standards that generally determine whether or not you can get one in a case like this. Well, they want not only an injunction, they want a preliminary injunction before the pipeline is completed to stop its construction. And this has always been a very, very difficult issue because what you have to do is to decide at the outset whether or not the uncertainties favor the applicant for the injunction or the defendant. And the usual view in these particular cases, and it's the correct view, is that when it comes to giving injunctive relief, the presumption is always set against the party requesting the injunction, particularly on a preliminary basis. And the reason is that by and large, most of the time, if you have hypothetical objections, they can be worked out on the completion of the pipeline. And if it turns out later on in the cycle, there's some kind of serious difficulty, you now have actual damages or an imminent threat of damages, which makes the injunction a much easier remedy to grant. And so what you have to understand is that the reason why you don't grant typically a preliminary injunction is because the possibility of a later injunction is very live in the discourse, and you know you don't want to shut everything down before there's any real sign of danger. So given this particular burden, they have to go in and try to show that there's some kind of serious and immediate threat to what is happening. And this turned out to be almost, not almost, virtually impossible, completely impossible to do if you start to go back and see what happened. 
And so this is essentially a battle that takes place on two fronts. Uh, the first front is, you know, how did you work through the various kinds of consultation? And the second front is, did you damage any industry, industry injury, rather, on tribal artifacts of one sort or another? And on the procedures, there were exhaustive efforts to consult the tribes, and their attitude is they were not given a meaningful role under the statute, and so therefore it was permissible for them to stall and to boycott and to shut things down. The case then comes before this judge, a man named Bosberg, James Bosberg, in the District of Columbia. He is an Obama appointee. He's an exceptionally good judge with a very distinguished record. And he writes this exhaustive opinion in which essentially he sides completely with the pipeline, saying that they were always willing to cooperate and the other side was not. Um, then what he did is he started looking at the route and the dangers and all this stuff, and he found no imminent peril particularly in the land that was in dispute, which was already subject to one pipeline, which was not on tribal territories a half a mile away, and on which there were no observable artifacts, all of which would have been protected anyhow, all of which, in fact, were not there because that's why you built the first pipeline. So he did not consider this to be a difficult case. What happens then is the Department of Justice says, we think we won, but we really think we lost. And so what they do is they ask the company to suspend working on this pipeline on the thousand feet that's in dispute and on a part which is on either side of something, a man-made lake called Lake Oahe, O-A-H-E, um, so that they can figure out whether or not you need to have other challenges that are brought. I regard the DOJ statement as nothing short of scandalous. If you wish to upset a case in which your own agencies, that is the um, Army Corps of Engineers, has done everything in accordance with the law as determined by a judge, and then say, we have some real difficulties with this, you really ought to explain what those difficulties were and why they make a difference. And all they did was issue a series of platitudinous statements about this, and they did it within hours after the decision came down, which led me to believe, and still leads me to believe, that they never bothered to read the decision they had their minds made up before this entire um, extraordinary order was issued, um, basically saying you're now shutting you down, notwithstanding the fact that we shouldn't shut you down. Richard, let's broaden this out a little bit. One of the commonalities between our two presidential candidates, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, is that they're both pledging to go big on infrastructure spending if they take office. But there's an issue with that and one that I think is probably illuminated by what's going on here. It's the we used to build things argument and people will point to things like the Golden Gate Bridge or the Hoover Dam and they'll say that these were these big sort of physically glorious projects and and we built them all things considered – relatively quickly. But is it fair to say that one of the reasons that things like that don't happen anymore, at least certainly don't happen at that pace, is that the regulatory environment has changed so much? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and this I regard as one of the great design failures of modern American law. Uh, The older rules on preliminary injunctions and final injunctions as developed by the uh, courts were essentially the right rules. The one that I mentioned is you don't bring in the sledgehammer until there's imminent peril. And so therefore, the permitting process should be relatively unimportant because what the permit says is we're not going to allow you to do anything until you dot every I and cross every T to show us that no matter what the eventual is things will not go wrong. This process can take years and essentially what you're trying to do is to guess how thousands of different low probability scenarios are going to play out in the courts. It's a completely wasteful and idle operation. So the way in which all these earlier sites 
were built is that you started construction after you had a very preliminary view of the thing, you know, architectural review of plans to show such things like the bridge would not fall down if it was built in this particular fashion. And then off you went to the races. To give you an idea of what the difference was, if you remember there was the freeway disruption in Santa Monica when they had an earthquake a couple of years ago. And what they did is they really had to get this thing back up or otherwise uh, the city would be cut in half. And they suspended all of the environmental preclearance situations and gave the company a contract which said that if you finish before four months, we're going to give you a bonus for each early day. And they managed to build this thing in something like three and a half months. Whereas if you'd gone through the normal process, it would have taken 10 years. You then look at the facts after and say, well, What kind of environmental damage did they cause? The answer is absolutely none because they understood they would be strictly liable if there had been some kind of an explosion or a nuisance or pollution or disruption somewhere else. So the old framework had this peculiar illustration and it's infinitely superior to this one. And what makes it even worse now is that the grounds on which you can stop things today seem to be getting broader and broader. So it's not just environmental stuff, it's artifact and cultural stuff. Now I'm all in favor of protecting cultural artifacts of one form or another. But there was a perfectly sensible statute on the book passed in 1966 having to do with national preservation, which calls for this consulting procedure. And there's nothing wrong with the particular procedure and there's nothing wrong with the way in which it was executed in this particular case. What's happened is the tribes have tried to make this a focal point uh, so that they can slow down this thing in order to get Congress to re-examine the entire system from scratch. They are perfectly entitled to do that, but not in the context of particular litigation. And sometimes when they publish things, they make it appear as though they got no consultation. Well, what they really mean to say is they didn't get the consultation that they would have desired, which essentially is a virtual veto right over the particular problem. So I think their legal position is very, very weak. There was on Wednesday an argument as to whether or not the appellate court should overturn uh, the preliminary injustice injunction issued by Bozberg. Um, I think the betting on virtually everybody's part is that that motion will lose. And it was, again, one of these very troublesome things. You look at the um, petition, which was drafted by Earth Justice, and in the first paragraph, they say, you know, since this ruling came down, they've destroyed particular artifacts, which would be very, very serious if it was done. And you'd expect to see a picture or a statement of where the artifacts were and how those things were destroyed. But it's not there. And so what are you supposed to make of these kinds of charges? And I think the answer is, in the absence of specificity, you ignore them. And that what you do in oral argument is you actually ask them, is this for real? Because if it is, you better show it. And if it's not, then you should be subject to serious sanctions because what you've done is sort of overstayed the appropriate role by introducing into the record hidden assertions of fact which are not verified by anything on the ground. I do not know what the grounds are. I'd be stunned if any of this happened. Uh, but you know, it certainly should be up to them or open to them to be able to show this. But I don't think that they could. So the thing becomes highly politicized. And I regard this as deeply regrettable. And if you want to expand infrastructure, it's always going to be long and skinny. And it's always going to have multiple veto points and blocks. And if you require a permitting system, which Covers about thousands of different things. You won't get infrastructures. You'll get litigation. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. 
For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.